Robert M. Piercig, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. The success of the business format franchise is without question the most important news in business. Over the course of one year, business format franchises have reported a success rate of 95% in contrast to the 50-plus percent failure rate of new independently owned businesses. Where 80% of all businesses fail in the first five years, 75% of all business format franchises succeed. The reason for that success is the franchise prototype. To the franchiser, the prototype becomes the working model of the dream, it is the dream in microcosm. The prototype becomes the incubator and the nursery for all creative thought, the station where creativity is nursed by pragmatism to grow into an innovation that works. The franchise prototype is also the place where all assumptions are put to the test to see how well they work before becoming operational in the business. Without it the franchise would be an impossible dream, as chaotic and undisciplined as any business. The prototype acts as a buffer between hypothesis and action. Putting ideas to the test in the real world rather than the world of competing ideas. The only criterion of value becomes the answer to the ultimate question, does it work? Once having completed his prototype, the franchiser then turns to the franchisee and says, let me show you how it works. And work it does. The system runs the business. The people run the system. In the franchise prototype, the system becomes the solution to the problems that have beset all businesses and all human organizations since time immemorial. The system integrates all the elements required to make a business work. It transforms a business into a machine, or more accurately, because it is so alive, into an organism, driven by the integrity of its parts, all working in concert toward a realized objective. And, with its prototype as its progenitor, it works like nothing else before it. At Ray Kroc's McDonald's, every possible detail of the business system was first tested in the prototype, and then controlled to a degree never before possible in a people-intensive business. The French fries were left in the warming bin for no more than seven minutes to prevent sogginess. A soggy French fry is not a McDonald's French fry. Hamburgers were removed from the hot trays in no more than ten minutes to retain the proper moisture. The frozen meat patties, precisely identical in size and weight, were turned at exactly the same time on the griddle. Pickles were placed by hand in a set pattern that prevented them from sliding out and landing in the customer's lap. Food was served to the customer in 60 seconds or less. Discipline, standardization, and order were the watchwords. Cleanliness was enforced with meticulous attention to the most seemingly trivial detail. Ray Kroc was determined that the customer would not equate inexpensive with inattentive or cheap. Nowhere had a business ever paid so much attention to the little things, to the system that guaranteed the customer that her expectations would be fulfilled in exactly the same way every time. Unlike the trade name franchise before it, Ray Kroc's system left the franchisee with as little operating discretion as possible. This was accomplished by sending him through a rigorous training program before ever being allowed to operate the franchise. At McDonald's, they called it the University of Hamburgerology, or Hamburger U there, the franchisee learned not how to make hamburgers but how to run the system that makes hamburgers, the system by which McDonald's satisfied its customers every single time. The system that was to be the foundation of McDonald's uncommon success. Is it any wonder that McDonald's calls itself the most successful small business in the world? It is. Every single extraordinary detail Ray Kroc invented four decades ago is even more extraordinary today. Whether it is Hamburger U, or the placement of pickles, or the exacting way in which the buns are warmed before serving, or the thickness of the patty, all of it, today, long after Ray Kroc has gone, is still known by the franchisee as the system at the heart of McDonald's. And just as it was then, it is now. Once the franchisee learns the system, he is given the key to his own business. Thus, the name, Turnkey Operation. The franchisee is licensed the right to use the system, learns how to run it, and then, turns the key. The business does the rest. And the franchisees love it. Because if the franchiser has designed the business well, every problem has been thought through. All that's left for the franchisee to do is learn how to manage the system. That's what the franchise prototype is all about. It's a place to conceive and perfect the system. To find out what works because you've worked it. The system isn't something you bring to the business. It's something you derive from the process of building the business. The franchise prototype is the answer to the perpetual question, how do I give my customer what he wants while maintaining control of the business that's giving it to him? To the entrepreneur, the franchise prototype is the medium through which his vision takes form in the real world. To the manager, the franchise prototype provides the order, the predictability, the system so important to his life. 
to the technician, the prototype is a place in which he is free to do the things he loves to do, technical work. And to the small business owner, the franchise prototype provides the means through which he can finally feed his three personalities in a balanced way while creating a business that works. So, now you have it, the franchise prototype is the model you've been looking for. The franchise prototype is the model of a business that works. The balanced model that will satisfy the entrepreneur, the manager, and the technician all at once. And it's been there all the time. It's been there at McDonald's. And at Federal Express. And at Disney World. And at Mrs. Fields Cookies. It's been there at Subway Sandwiches and Domino's Pizza and Kentucky Fried Chicken and Pizza Hut. It's been there at Taco Bell and UPS and Universal Studios. It's been there, waiting for you to discover it, all this time. It's been there in the form of a proprietary operating system at the heart of every extraordinary business around you, franchised or not. Because, after all, that's all that any business format franchise really is. It is a proprietary way of doing business that successfully and preferentially differentiates every extraordinary business from every one of its competitors. In this light, every great business in the world is a franchise. The question is, how do you build yours? How do you put this powerfully liberating idea to work for you? How do you create your franchise prototype? How do you, like Ray Kroc, build a business that works predictably, effortlessly, and profitably each and every day? How do you build a business that works without you? How do you get free of your business to live a fuller life? Do you get it? Do you see why this is so important? Because until you do it, your business will control your life. But once you begin to put this idea to work for you, you're on the way to being free. I could see that Sarah got it. I could see that the flush on her cheeks now had nothing to do with the work she'd been doing all day. I could see that her dark, intelligent, creative eyes were riveted on mine, and that the questions were bubbling within her. She was feeling excitement contemplating the creation of an entrepreneurial business. And she knew she had one already. She could do in her business what Ray Kroc had done in his. All she needed to do was learn how. Working on your business, not in it. Form is only a beginning. It is the combination of feelings and a function, shapes and things that come to one in connection with the discoveries made as one goes into the wood that pull it together and give meaning to form. James Cronov, A Cabinet Maker's Notebook. It is critical that you understand the point I'm about to make. For if you do, neither your business nor your life will ever be the same. The point is, your business is not your life. Your business and your life are two totally separate things. At its best, your business is something apart from you, rather than a part of you, with its own rules and its own purposes. An organism, you might say, that will live or die according to how well it performs its sole function, to find and keep customers. Once you recognize that the purpose of your life is not to serve your business, but that the primary purpose of your business is to serve your life, you can then go to work on your business, rather than in it, with a full understanding of why it is absolutely necessary for you to do so. This is where you can put the model of the franchise prototype to work for you. Where working on your business rather than in your business will become the central theme of your daily activity, the prime catalyst for everything you do from this moment forward. Pretend that the business you own, or want to own, is the prototype, or will be the prototype, for 5,000 more just like it. That your business is going to serve as the model for 5,000 more just like it. Not almost like it, but just like it. Perfect replicates. Clones. In other words, pretend that you are going to franchise your business. Note, I said pretend. I'm not saying that you should. That isn't the point here, unless, of course, you want it to be. Further, now that you know what the game is, the franchise game, understand that there are rules to follow if you are to win. 1. The model will provide consistent value to your customers, employees, suppliers, and lenders, beyond what they expect. 2. The model will be operated by people with the lowest possible level of skill. 3. The model will stand out as a place of impeccable order. 4. All work in the model will be documented in operations manuals. 5. The model will provide a uniformly predictable service to the customer. 6. The model will utilize a uniform color, dress, and facilities code. Let's take a look at each of these rules in turn. 1. The model will provide consistent value to your customers, employees, suppliers, and lenders, beyond what they expect. What is value? How do we understand it? I would suggest that value is what people perceive it to be, and nothing more. So what could your prototype do that would not only provide consistent value to your customers, employees, suppliers, and lenders but would provide it beyond their wildest expectations? That is the question every entrepreneur must ask. Because it is the raison d'etre of his business. 
It is in the understanding of value, as it impacts every person with whom your business comes into contact, that every extraordinary business lives. Value can be a word said at the door of the business as a customer leaves. Value can be an unexpected gift from the business arriving in the mail. Value can be a word of recognition to a new recruit for a job well done, or, for that matter, to a seasoned salesperson who's been successful for years. Value can be the reasonable price of your products, or the dedication you show in the process of explaining them to a customer who needs more help than usual. Value can be a simple word of thanks to your banker for his conscientiousness. Value is essential to your business and to the satisfaction you get from it as it grows. 2. The model will be operated by people with the lowest possible level of skill. Yes, I said lowest possible level of skill. Because if your model depends on highly skilled people, it's going to be impossible to replicate. Such people are at a premium in the marketplace. They're also expensive, thus raising the price you will have to charge for your product or service. By lowest possible level of skill I mean the lowest possible level necessary to fulfill the functions for which each is intended. Obviously, if yours is a legal firm, you must have attorneys. If yours is a medical firm, you must have physicians. But you don't need to hire brilliant attorneys or brilliant physicians. You need to create the very best system through which good attorneys and good physicians can be leveraged to produce exquisite results. The question you need to keep asking yourself is, how can I give my customer the results he wants systematically rather than personally? Put another way, how can I create a business whose results are systems-dependent rather than people-dependent? Systems-dependent rather than expert-dependent. How can I create an expert system rather than hire one? That is not to say that people are unimportant. On the contrary, people bring systems to life. People make it possible for things that are designed to work to produce the intended results. And, in the process, people who are systems-oriented, as all your people must be, learn how to more effectively make things work for your customers and for your business by learning how to improve the systems. It's been said, and I believe it to be true, that great businesses are not built by extraordinary people but by ordinary people doing extraordinary things. But for ordinary people to do extraordinary things, a system, a way of doing things, is absolutely essential in order to compensate for the disparity between the skills your people have and the skills your business needs if it is to produce consistent results. In this context, the system becomes the tools your people use to increase the productivity, to get the job done in the way it needs to get done in order for your business to successfully differentiate itself from your competition. It's your job, more accurately, the job of your business, to develop those tools and to teach your people how to use them. It's your people's job to use the tools you've developed and to recommend improvements based on their experience with them. There's another reason for this rule, what I call the rule of ordinary people, that says the blessing of ordinary people is that they make your job more difficult. The typical owner of a small business prefers highly skilled people because he believes they make his job easier, he can simply leave the work to them. That is, the typical small business owner prefers management by abdication to management by delegation. Unfortunately, the inevitable result of this kind of thinking is that the business also grows to depend on the whims and moods of its people. If they're in the mood, the job gets done. If they're not, it doesn't. In this kind of business, a business that relies on discretion, how do I motivate my people, becomes the constant question. How do I keep them in the mood? It is literally impossible to produce a consistent result in a business that depends on extraordinary people. No business can do it for long. And no extraordinary business tries to. Because every extraordinary business knows that when you intentionally build your business around the skills of ordinary people, you will be forced to ask the difficult questions about how to produce a result without the extraordinary ones. You will be forced to find a system that leverages your ordinary people to the point where they can produce extraordinary results over and over again. You will be forced to invent innovative system solutions to the people problems that have plagued small businesses and big businesses as well, since the beginning of time. You will be forced to build a business that works. You will be forced to do the work of business development not as a replacement for people development but as its necessary correlate. 3. The model will stand out as a place of impeccable order. At the core of rule number 3 is the irrepressible fact that in a world of chaos, most people crave order. And it doesn't take a genius to see that the world today is in a state of massive chaos. Wars, famine, crime, violence, inflation, recession, a shifting of traditional forms of social interaction, the threat of nuclear proliferation, HIV, Holocaust in all its horrific forms are all communicated instantly and continuously to the fixated consumer, to all of us watching TV. 
As Alvin Toffler wrote in his revolutionary book, The Third Wave, most people surveying the world around them today see only chaos. They suffer a sense of personal powerlessness and pointlessness. He went on to say that, individuals need life structure. A life lacking in comprehensive structure is an aimless wreck. The absence of structure breeds breakdown. Structure provides the relatively fixed points of reference we need. It is these relatively fixed points of reference that an orderly business provides its customer and its employees in an otherwise disorderly world. A business that looks orderly says to your customer that your people know what they're doing. A business that looks orderly says to your people that you know what you're doing. A business that looks orderly says that while the world may not work, some things can. A business that looks orderly says to your customer that he can trust in the result delivered and assures your people that they can trust in their future with you. A business that looks orderly says that the structure is in place. 4. All work in the model will be documented in operations manuals. Documentation says, this is how we do it here, without documentation, all routinized work turns into exceptions. Documentation provides your people with the structure they need and with a written account of how to get the job done in the most efficient and effective way. It communicates to the new employees, as well as to the old, that there is a logic to the world in which they have chosen to work, that there is a technology by which results are produced. Documentation is an affirmation of order. Again from Toffler, dot for many people, a job is crucial psychologically, over and above the paycheck. By making clear demands on their time and energy, it provides an element of structure around which the rest of their lives can be organized. The operative word here is clear. Documentation provides the clarity structure needs if it is to be meaningful to your people. Through documentation, structure is reduced to specific means rather than generalized ends, to a literal and simplified task the technician in each of us needs to understand to do the job at hand. The operations manual, the repository of the documentation, is therefore best described as a company's how-to-do-it guide. It designates the purpose of the work, specifies the steps needed to be taken while doing that work, and summarizes the standards associated with both the process and the result. Your prototype would not be a model without one. 5. The model will provide a uniformly predictable service to the customer while the business must look orderly, it is not sufficient, the business must also act orderly. It must do things in a predictable, uniform way. An experience I had not too long ago illustrates the point. I went to a barber who, in our first meeting, gave me one of the best haircuts I had ever had. He was a master with the scissors and used them exclusively, never resorting to electric shears as so many others do. Before cutting my hair, he insisted on washing it, explaining that the washing made cutting easier. During the haircut, one of his assistants kept my cup of coffee fresh. In all, the experience was delightful, so I made an appointment to return. When I returned, however, everything had changed. Instead of using the scissors exclusively, he used the shears about 50% of the time. He not only didn't wash my hair but never even mentioned it. The assistant did bring me a cup of coffee, but only once, never to return. Nonetheless, the haircut was again excellent. Several weeks later, I returned for a third appointment. This time, the barber did wash my hair, but after cutting it, preliminary to a final trim. This time he again used the scissors exclusively, but, unlike the first two times, no coffee was served, although he did ask if I would like a glass of wine. At first I thought it might be the assistant's day off, but she soon appeared, busily working with the inventory near the front of the shop. As I left, something in me decided not to go back. It certainly wasn't the haircut, he did an excellent job. It wasn't the barber. He was pleasant, affable, seemed to know his business. It was something more essential than that. There was absolutely no consistency to the experience. The expectations created at the first meeting were violated at each subsequent visit. I wasn't sure what to expect. And something in me wanted to be sure. I wanted an experience I could repeat by making the choice to return. The unpredictability said nothing about the barber other than that he was constantly, and arbitrarily, changing my experience for me. He was in control of my experience, not I and he demonstrated little sensitivity to the impact of his behavior on me. He was running the business for him, not for me. And by doing so, he was depriving me of the experience of making a decision to patronize his business for my own reasons, whatever they might have been. It didn't matter what I wanted. It didn't matter that I enjoyed the sound of the scissors and somehow equated them with a professional haircut. It didn't matter that I enjoyed being waited on by his assistant. It didn't matter that I enjoyed the experience of having my hair washed before he set to work and that I actually believed it would improve the quality of the haircut. 
I would have been embarrassed to ask for these things, let alone to give my reasons for wanting them. They were all so totally emotional, so illogical. How could I have explained them, or justified them, without appearing to be a boob? What the barber did was to give me a delightful experience and then take it away. It reminded me of my first psychology course in college. I recall the professor talking about the burnt child syndrome. This is where a child is alternately punished and rewarded for the same kind of behavior. This form of behavior in a parent can be disastrous to the child, he never knows what to expect or how to act. It can also be disastrous to the customer. The burnt child, of course, has no choice but to stay with the parent. But the burnt customer can go someplace else. And he will. What you do in your model is not nearly as important as doing what you do the same way, each and every time. 6. The model will utilize a uniform color, dress, and facilities code marketing studies tell us that all consumers are moved to act by the colors and shapes they find in the marketplace. Different consumer groups simply respond differently to specific colors and shapes. Believe it or not, the colors and shapes of your model can make or break your business. Louis Cheskin, founder of the Color Research Institute, wrote about the power of colors and shapes in his book, Why People Buy. Little things that are meaningless from a practical point of view may have great emotional meaning through their symbolism. Images and colors are often great motivating forces. Some time ago we conducted a study of women shopping in an apparel shop. A young woman wanted to buy a blouse that was available in several colors. She held the blue blouse up to her face and looked into the mirror. She was a blonde and she knew she looked good in blue. She fingered the red one lovingly. She loved the color, she thought. But she said it was too strong and loud. The salesgirl reminded her that yellow was the fashionable color. She could not make up her mind between the color that she looked best in, the color she liked best, and the color in current fashion, so she settled on a gray blouse. It was reported to me a couple of weeks later that she didn't like the gray blouse. It was dead, she said. She wore it only twice. Some of the other purchases of blouses permitted one of the inner drives to win. Some bought blouses because the color flattered them, others chose the color that was in fashion and some took the color they liked. Each chose a color that satisfied the strongest urge or fulfilled the greatest wish. Just think. All this deep psychology in the mere process of buying a blouse point three your business is the same as the blouse in Cheskin's story. There are colors that work and colors that don't. The colors you show your customer must be scientifically determined and then used throughout your model, on the walls, the floors, the ceiling, the vehicles, the invoices, your people's clothes, the displays, the signs. The model must be thought of as a package for your one and only product, your business. Just as with colors, there are shapes that work and shapes that don't, on your business card, your signs, your logo, your merchandise displays. In one test, Cheskin showed that a triangle produced far fewer sales than a circle, and a crest out produced both by a significant margin. Imagine, sales increased or lost by the choice of a seemingly meaningless shape. The shape of your sign, your logo, the type style used on your business cards will have a significant impact on sales whether you care to think about it or not. Your prototype must be packaged as carefully as any box of cereal. Before we go on, let's summarize what we've covered so far. Go to work on your business rather than in it. Go to work on your business as if it were the pre-production prototype of a mass-producible product. Think of your business as something apart from yourself, as a world of its own, as a product of your efforts, as a machine designed to fulfill a very specific need, as a mechanism for giving you more life, as a system of interconnecting parts, as a package of cereal, as a can of beans, as something created to satisfy your consumers' deeply held perceived needs, as a place that acts distinctly different from all other places, as a solution to somebody else's problem. Think of your business as anything but a job. Go to work on your business rather than in it, and ask yourself the following questions, how can I get my business to work, but without me? How can I get my people to work, but without my constant interference? How can I systematize my business in such a way that it could be replicated 5,000 times, so the 5,000th unit would run as smoothly as the first? How can I own my business, and still be free of it? How can I spend my time doing the work I love to do rather than the work I have to do? If you ask yourself these questions, you'll eventually come face to face with the real problem, that you don't know the answers. And that's been the problem all along. But now it should be different. Because now you know that you don't know. Now you are ready to look the problem squarely in the face. The problem isn't your business, it never has been. The problem is you. It has always been you and will always be you. Until you change, that is. 
until you change your perspective about what a business is and how one works. Until you begin to think about your business in a totally new way. Until you accept the undeniable fact that business, even a very small business like yours, is both an art and a science. And, like art and science, to successfully develop a serious business you need specific information. Most importantly, to successfully develop a serious business you need a process, a practice. By which to obtain that information and, once obtained, a method with which to put that information to use in your business productively. What follows is just such a method. A programmed approach to learning what needs to be learned about your business in order to climb the proverbial ladder. A proven way to the top that has been successfully implemented by thousands of small businesses just like yours. We call it the E-Myth Mastery Program. And it's a process that can change your life. Sarah looked at me thoughtfully for a moment, and then said, let me describe in my own words what I heard you just say. She folded her hands tightly together before her on the table, and, as if for emphasis, leaned toward me. What you're saying is that I'm too identified with my business. That I need to separate myself from it, first in the way I think about it, second in the way I feel about it, and third in the way I work in it. And what I hear you saying is that it is this identification with my business, my technicians need to see the business as nothing more or less than me, that is causing me all the pain I'm feeling, all the frustration I experience going to work every day. My belief that, if I'm good, the business will be. That if I work hard enough, the business will succeed. That if I am in touch with everything that goes on in the business, nothing can possibly go wrong. And what I hear you saying is that in order for me to be free of my frustration, in order to exercise true control over my business, I need to disidentify with my business. I need to conceive of my business in a radically differently way than I'm accustomed to. I need to conceive of my business as a product. Just like my pies are a product, I need to think of my business like that. And if I were to think that way, I would suddenly have to ask the question, how must my business as a product work in order for it to successfully attract not only customers but also employees who want to work there? And the minute I ask that question, I'm already doing business in a totally new way, Sarah paused for a moment, as if to let that last thought truly sink in. You know, she said quietly, I can truly say that until this very moment, I had never thought about my business as an idea before. I simply thought of it as a job. A place to go to work. I never even considered there was another way to think about it. But now, now it's getting exciting. An entirely new opportunity. Thinking like this reminds me of my first literature class in high school. My teacher was Mr. Rothker and he had an incredible ability to bring the subject of literature alive. By the time I read the first assignment, it was Huckleberry Finn, I couldn't put the book down. These were real people in the book, living out their lives, in real places, overcoming obstacles, terror, love, feelings. Huckleberry Finn came alive to me in that first class like no book had before it. That's what this feels like to me, like we're opening the covers of a new book, not knowing what's inside, but knowing, given the wonderful, rich anticipation that accompanies every new adventure, that nothing will ever be the same again. That's how this all feels to me. That my business will never be the same from this moment on. And neither will I. She pressed her hands together, and then leaned back against her chair as if to catch a breath. And, if I understand you correctly, that's what you're calling the franchise prototype. The franchise prototype is the name for my business as a product. It's a way of thinking about my business as one complete thing, a whole, you might say, that looks, acts, and feels in a clearly definable way, apart from me. Independent of me. That if I did all this correctly, all about pies could be designed, engineered, and manufactured just like any product is, to operate predictably in such a way that causes everyone to want to buy from it. And because it is so predictably responsive to their needs, they would keep on coming back for more. And it's my job to design, engineer, and manufacture all about pies until it works perfectly without me having to be there all the time. And, while I must admit, I'm overwhelmed by the idea of it, it's the most challenging and exciting thought I've had in years. And the great thing is, I've already got the business. All I have to do now is to learn how. Sarah, I said, I couldn't have said it any better. So, let's go on to the next step, the business development process. Because what you have to learn is going to be easier than you think. Part 3, Building a Small Business That Works. The Business Development Process. Tolerance for failure is a very specific part of the excellent company culture, and that lesson comes directly from the top. Champions have to make lots of tries and consequently suffer some failures or the organization won't learn. Thomas J. Peters and Robert H. Waterman Jr. In Search of Excellence. 
Building the prototype of your business is a continuous process, a business development process. Its foundation is three distinct yet thoroughly integrated activities through which your business can pursue its natural evolution. They are innovation, quantification, and orchestration. Innovation. Innovation is often thought of as creativity. But as Harvard professor Theodore Levitt points out, the difference between creativity and innovation is the difference between thinking about getting things done in the world and getting things done. Says Professor Levitt, creativity thinks up new things. Innovation does new things. The franchise revolution has brought with it an application of innovation that has been almost universally ignored by American business. By recognizing that it is not the commodity that demands innovation but the process by which it is sold, the franchiser aims his innovative energies at the way in which his business does business. To the franchiser, the entire process by which the business does business is a marketing tool, a mechanism for finding and keeping customers. Each and every component of the business system is a means through which the franchiser can differentiate his business from all other businesses in the mind of his consumer. Where the business is the product, how the business interacts with the consumer is more important than what it sells. And the how doesn't have to be expensive to be effective. In fact, some of the most powerful innovations have required little more than the change of a few words, a gesture, the color of clothing. For example, what does the salesperson in a retail store invariably say to the incoming customer? He says, may I help you, have you ever heard that one before? And how does the customer invariably respond? He says, no thanks, just looking, have you ever said that one before? Of course you have. In fact, it's a universal phenomenon. Now why do you suppose the salesperson asks that question when he knows that the customer will respond the way he does? Because the customer responds the way he does, that's why. If the customer is just looking, the salesperson doesn't have to go to work. Can you imagine what those few words are costing retailers in this country in lost sales? Here's a perfect opportunity to try a simple and inexpensive innovation. The innovation. Instead of asking, hi, may I help you, try, hi, have you been in here before? The customer will respond with either a yes or a no. In either case, you are then free to pursue the conversation. If the answer is yes, you can say, great. We've created a special new program for people who have shopped here before. Let me take just a minute to tell you about it. If the answer is no, you can say, great, we've created a special new program for people who haven't shopped here before. Let me take just a minute to tell you about it. Of course, you'll have to have created a special new program to talk about in either case. But that's the easy part. Just think. A few simple words. Nothing fancy. But the result is guaranteed to put money in your pocket. How much? That depends on how enthusiastically you do it. The experience of our retail clients tells us that by doing this one thing alone, sales will increase between 10 and 16% almost immediately. Can you believe it? A few simple words and sales instantly go up. Not by just a little bit, mind you, but by a considerable amount. What would you do for a 10 to 16% increase in sales? The innovation. Again. For salespeople, a six-week test. For the first three weeks, wear a brown suit to work, a starch tan shirt, a brown tie for men, and well-polished brown shoes. Make certain that all the elements of your suit are clean and well-pressed. For the following three weeks wear a navy blue suit, a good, starched white shirt, a tie with red in it, a pin or a scarf with red in it for women, and highly polished black shoes. The result will be dramatic, sales will go up during the second three-week period. Why? Because, as our clients have consistently discovered, blue suits outsell brown suits. And it doesn't matter who's in them. Is it any wonder that McDonald's, Federal Express, Disney, Mrs. Fields Cookies, and many more extraordinary companies spend so much time and money on determining how they look? It pays. And it pays consistently, over and over and over again. The innovation. The next time you want somebody to do something for you, touch him softly on the arm as you ask him to do it. You will be amazed to find that more people will respond positively when you touch them than when you don't. Again, to apply this to your business, you or your salespeople should make a point of touching each customer on the elbow, arm, or back some time during the sales process. You will find, as our clients have found, that there will be a measurable increase in sales. Innovation is the heart of every exceptional business. Innovation continually poses the question, what is standing in the way of my customer getting what he wants from my business? For the innovation to be meaningful it must always take the customer's point of view. At the same time, innovation simplifies your business to its critical essentials. 
It should make things easier for you and your people in the operation of your business, otherwise it's not innovation but complication. Innovation, then, is the mechanism through which your business identifies itself in the mind of your customer and establishes its individuality. It is the result of a scientifically generated and quantifiably verified profile of your customer's perceived needs and unconscious expectations. It is the skill developed within your business and your people that is constantly asking, what is the best way to do this, knowing, even as the question is asked, that we will never discover the best way, but by asking we will assuredly discover a way that's better than the one we know now. In that regard, I think of innovation as the best way skill. It produces a high level of energy in every company within which it's nurtured, fed, and stimulated, energy that in turn feeds everyone the company touches, its employees, customers, suppliers, and lenders. In an innovative company everyone grows. There's no doubt about it, innovation is the signature of a bold, imaginative hand. Quantification. But on its own, innovation leads nowhere. To be at all effective, all innovations need to be quantified. Without quantification, how would you know whether the innovation worked? By quantification, I'm talking about the numbers related to the impact an innovation makes. For example, ask any group of small business owners how many selling opportunities they had the day before, as we have at eMyth Worldwide day after day, and I promise you 99% of them won't know the answer. The sad fact is that quantification is not being done in most businesses. And it's costing them a fortune. For example, how would you know that by changing the words you used to greet an incoming customer you produced a 16% increase in sales unless you quantified it by 1. Determining how many people came in the door before the innovation was put into effect. 2. Determining how many people bought products and what the dollar value of those products were before you changed the words and what you said to produce those sales. 3. Counting the number of people who came in the door after you changed the words. 4. Counting the number of people who purchased something. 5. Determining the average unit value of a sale. And 6. Determining what the improvement was as a result of your innovation. These numbers enable you to determine the precise value of your innovation. How would you know that wearing a blue suit had a specific monetary impact on your business unless you quantified that impact and had a specific control against which to measure it? The answer is obvious, you wouldn't. And as I've said, few small business owners do quantify these things, even those who believe in quantification. Because few small business owners believe that such apparently insignificant innovations are really that important. But ask yourself, if you could increase sales 10% by doing something as simple as wearing a blue suit, would you do it? Would you make it important? The answer is as obvious as the question is ridiculous. Of course you would. And it is the obvious that must be addressed by quantification at the outset of the business development process. Begin by quantifying everything related to how you do business. I mean everything. How many customers do you see in person each day? How many in the morning? In the afternoon? How many people call your business each day? How many call to ask for a price? How many want to purchase something? How many of product X are sold each day? At what time of the day are they sold? How many are sold each week? Which days are busiest? How busy? And so forth. You can't ask too many questions about the numbers. Eventually, you and your people will think of your entire business in terms of the numbers. You'll quantify everything. You'll be able to read your business's health chart by the flow of the numbers. You'll know which numbers are critical and which are not. You'll become as familiar with your business's numbers as your doctor is with your blood pressure and pulse rates. Because without the numbers you can't possibly know where you are, let alone where you're going. With the numbers, your business will take on a totally new meaning. It will come alive with possibilities. Orchestration. Once you innovate a process and quantify its impact on your business, once you find something that works better than what preceded it, once you discover how to increase the yeses from your customers, your employees, your suppliers, and your lenders, at that point, it's time to orchestrate the whole thing. Orchestration is the elimination of discretion, or choice, at the operating level of your business. Without orchestration, nothing could be planned, and nothing anticipated, by you or your customer. If you're doing everything differently each time you do it, if everyone in your company is doing it by their own discretion, their own choice, rather than creating order, you're creating chaos. As Theodore Levitt says in his stunning book, Marketing for Business Growth, discretion is the enemy of order, standardization, and quality. If a blue suit works, wear it every single time you're in front of a customer, is the dictum of the disciples of orchestration. If, hi, have you been in here before, works better than anything else you've tried, say it every single time you greet a customer, is the rule of the day from the disciples of orchestration. 
By every disciple of orchestration I'm referring to anyone who has ever seriously decided to produce a consistent, predictable result in the world of business, no matter what business they are in. Whether that be Fred Smith at Federal Express, Tom Watson at IBM, Ray Kroc at McDonald's, Walt Disney at Disney, Debbie and Randy Fields at Mrs. Fields Cookies, or whomever, throughout the course of time. Because every founder of every great business format franchise company, whether it is franchised or not, knows one thing to be true, if you haven't orchestrated it, you don't own it. And if you don't own it, you can't depend on it. And if you can't depend on it, you haven't got a franchise. And without a franchise no business can hope to succeed. If, by a franchise, you understand that I'm talking about a proprietary way of doing business that differentiates your business from everyone else's. In short, the definition of a franchise is simply your unique way of doing business. And unless your unique way of doing business can be replicated every single time, you don't own it. You have lost it. And once you've lost it, you're out of business. The need for orchestration is based on the absolutely quantifiable certainty that people will do only one thing predictably, be unpredictable. But for your business to be predictable, your people must be. Then what? Then the system must provide the vehicle to facilitate predictability. To do what? To give your customer what he wants every single time. Why? Because unless your customer gets everything he wants every single time, he'll go someplace else to get it. Orchestration is the glue that holds you fast to your customer's perceptions. Orchestration is the certainty that is absent from every other human experience. It is the order and the logic behind the human craving for reason. Orchestration is as simple as doing what you do, saying what you say, looking like you look, being how and who you are, for as long as it works. For as long as it produces the results you want. And when it doesn't work any longer, change it. The business development process is not static. It's not something you do and then are done with. It's something you do all the time. In other words, once you've innovated, quantified, and orchestrated something in your business, you must continue to innovate, quantify, and orchestrate it. The business development process is dynamic, simply because the world, moving as it does, will not tolerate a stationary object. The world will collide with whatever you've created, and sooner or later destroy it. The business development process is that which enables you to preempt the world's changes. It hopefully precedes them, anticipates them, and, if not, at least is infinitely flexible in relationship to them. In short, innovation, quantification, and orchestration are the backbone of every extraordinary business. They are the essence of your business development process. I need you to help me with something. Sarah said, a look of concern on her face. I need help coming to grips with this whole subject of orchestration. It sounds so mechanical, so deadening. When I think of it, I picture a shop full of people working dispassionately, each of them doing things in identically the same way, like robots. Certainly you can't be saying that. But I don't know how else to think about it. She paused with uncertainty, but then, as though deciding she had made her point, grew quiet and waited for my answer. Sarah, I began softly, if the business development process were only about orchestration, I would agree with you, it would be deadly. Absent a higher purpose, all habits are. Because that's all that orchestration really is, Sarah, a habit. A way of doing something habitually. The problem is you can't understand the value of an entire process by separating it from its parts, or its parts from the process. Because once you separate the parts of a process, once you take a process apart, there is no process. There is no movement whatsoever. There is only this thing or that. There is no beginning, no middle, no end. There is no story, there's only an event, frozen in time. You might say that apart from its process, the part of a process is dead. So when you think of orchestration absent innovation and quantification, you're describing an action stripped of its purpose, its meaning, its vitality. No, to fully understand the role any action, or any piece of work, plays in the business as a whole. You have to see it as a part of the whole, not as a thing in itself. Let me show you what I mean. Think back to your aunt's kitchen. Think about the process of baking a pie. Certainly when you remember the entire process you and your aunt went through, you remember much more than any single part of it, isn't that true? Sarah smiled warmly, reliving the experience in her aunt's kitchen. Yes, of course that's true, she responded. It all melts together into a sensation, you might say. Into a picture, and smells, and movements, and things, fused together with my aunt's remarks and her laughter and her hands doing the things they did on the cutting board. Exactly the opposite of what I imagine orchestration to be, she said firmly. In fact, that's what was so special to me about the kitchen. The creativity of it all. 
the continuous stream of surprises, but think about it, Sarah. Is that really true? Wasn't there a specific way your aunt taught you to cut the fruit? A specific way to hold it? A specific way to prepare it? Wasn't there a specific way to do everything your aunt taught you to do? And wasn't the creativity, the continuous stream of surprises, a result not just of the specific work you were doing but of your continuous and exhilarating experience of improving as you learned how to do those very specific tasks better and better, until you could do them almost as well as your aunt? Wasn't that where the joy came from? That if you were resigned to doing one thing, one way, forever, without ever improving, there would be no joy, there would only be the same deadening routine. And isn't that what your aunt taught you as she taught you to bake pies, the mystery that change can bring? So, of course, there needs to be orchestration, Sarah. There needs to be a way we do something. There needs to be a set routine. Because without it, there would be nothing to improve upon. And without improvement, there would be no reason to be. We would be machines. Or, as you called them, robots, there would be the tyranny of routine. There would be the monotony and the boredom you so eloquently describe. But with the process, with the continuous innovation and quantification that precedes the orchestration and that follows it, with this continuous investigation into the way of work, the work itself becomes key to our own personal transformation. The work itself becomes something other than a habit, it becomes an exploration into who we are and how we express ourselves in relationship to something much larger. First, the position we fill. Then the function it fills. Then the business within which the function fulfills both itself and the business, without which it wouldn't exist. Then the world within which the business fulfills its purpose as well as the purpose of the people with whom, and for whom, it comes into contact. And so on, and so forth. What I've just described is the thrill of apprenticeship, the learning and growing that you experienced in the kitchen under your aunt's tutelage. That's one level of experience. But there are more. A second kind of experience is when you begin to develop a certain level of mastery of the orchestrated skills your aunt introduced you to, mastery that comes from your practice. That's the mastery of the craftsperson. The craftsperson develops a knowingness about the work she does that bears its own fruit, the fruit of being present, or attentive. The craftsperson learns that within the work she does there is a jewel hiding below the surface. That the thrill of the craft is to discover the jewel. And that there is only one way to discover it, to practice the craft mindlessly. To become one with the work. To polish and polish, as though with one's heart. That there is no way to know when the jewel will show itself, but to trust with all one's heart that one day, when it is least expected, the jewel will be there. It will appear. And so the craftsperson is one who has reached that stage of her development where she is content with the work, and only the work, knowing that it is only through being there with one's work that the jewel will reveal itself, and that it is the work, and only the work, raised to the level of near perfection that connects the craftsperson with herself, with her own heart. And so she practices, day in and day out, content to do so, without the thrill of the apprentice to keep her going, but knowing deep inside that there is no place to go but here. Unlike the apprentice's stage, the craftsperson's stage is long and relatively serene until that day when the jewel does appear, and with it a stunning explosion of light enraptures the craftsperson and brings with it mastery. You've seen mastery before, Sarah. You've seen it in your aunt's face, in her eyes, in the way she spoke to you. For the master, there is only one way and that is to teach another. The master is connected to the apprentice as though to her past. As you are to your childhood. The master knows that the process of growing, of change, of transformation, is always moving, never still. It is in the face of the apprentice that the master sees herself anew. It is in the face of the craftsperson that the master renews her pilgrimage and finds the beauty of giving herself up to work. It is in the face of the work that the master discovers anew why she is so enraptured and, in so doing, brings her rapture to the apprentice to start all over again. In much the same way, orchestration builds upon that which preceded it, and becomes the foundation for that which is about to follow, and, in the process, honors the past, the present, and the future. To me, Sarah, that is what the business development process is all about, it is a search, within which the very ordinary things we must do from day to day are the essential hub of the wheel around which the search moves. On a more practical level, what we've experienced in our work with small businesses is that, as the business development process becomes an integral part of the business, it also becomes an integral part of the communication between the participants. It becomes not only a way of thinking and a way of doing but a way of being as well. You might say that, while going to work on the business, people begin to realize that it is a powerful metaphor for going to work on their lives. 
And that, I believe, is the heart of the process, not efficiency, not effectiveness, not more money, not to downsize or get lean, but to simply and finally create more life for everyone who comes into contact with the business, but most of all, for you, the person who owns it. So, I obviously feel passionately about the subject. What you call it doesn't really matter, call it the business development process, re-engineering, TQM, excellence, or Kaizen, the entire subject becomes a desultory process if it doesn't address the hearts and minds and souls of people. Quality is just a word, and an empty word at that, if it doesn't include harmony, balance, passion, intention, attention. Continuous improvement for its own sake is a waste of time. Life is what a business is about, and life is what this work is about. Coming to grips with oneself, in the face of an incredibly complex world that can teach us if we're open to learn. In this way, the business development process can be thought of as a metaphor for personal transformation, for coming to grips with real life. For developing real skills within a structure of your own design. For understanding the dynamics of change, of value, of communication, of thought. It's an idea. An idea that we at eMyth Worldwide have learned to manifest in the practical world. It is a philosophy. It is a cosmology. It is whatever you wish it to be. But what it is, in the end, is an opportunity to fulfill whatever is fulfillable in the place you find yourself now, and in any future place you could occupy with enough imagination and enough of a wish. I suddenly became aware that I had been going on without checking in with Sarah. I've been known to do that at times. I'm sorry, Sarah. I got carried away with the idea and the sound of my own voice. Do you have any questions? Can I be more specific? Sarah touched my hands on the table, and said, my head is full of questions, but somehow I think you're going to answer them. I just want to thank you for doing what you just did. If you don't mind, could we go on and talk about how all this works? I took a sip of tea, and went on. Your business development program. And I say to ye all, good friends, that as ye grow in golf, ye come to see the things ye learn there in every other place. The grace that comes from such a discipline, the extra feel in the hands, the extra strength and knowing, all those special powers ye've felt from time to time, begin to enter our lives. Michael Murphy. Golf in the kingdom. Now you understand the task ahead, to think of your business as though it were the prototype for 5,000 more just like it. To imagine that someone will walk through your door with the intention of buying your business, but only if it works. And only if it works without a lot of work and without you to work it. Imagine yourself at that moment. Imagine your smile inside as you say, let me show you how it works, knowing that not only will it work but it will work better than any business he's ever seen. Imagine yourself taking the potential buyer through your business, explaining each component and how it works with every other component.